0: To you. Um, uh, welcome to those, on, to those online uh, as well who are joining our uh, Sunday online service. Um, I wanted to begin in the same vein as Pastor E to begin by speaking to the fathers um, and encouraging you, um, let me see the fathers in the room, yes, that you are necessary um, and you are indispensable um, and you are foundational in the home um, and therefore you are foundational to society as a whole, um, because the family is the foundation of society of any society, um, which is why when fathers leave and fathers are absent, they leave a a big gap. You as fathers cannot be replaced by mothers, and you certainly cannot be replaced by the government. God the Father has called you to image Him to your children. Um, and as you assume the responsibility of raising your children and, uh, your, your, and, and the nurture and admission of the Lord, uh, he indeed will give you strength. Um, and often we, we feel like we fail on a daily basis, um, but God who supplies all of our needs according to the riches of his glory uh, will grant you the grace to teach and lead uh, and discipline and love your children uh, and your wives. Uh, may your children and your wives honor you, and submit to you uh, as the head of the home, um, as you honor and submit to God, your father. Um, and can I encourage those who, uh, who have lost their fathers uh, in various ways, um, or have significantly strained relationships with their fathers, um, that God is a father to the fatherless. Um, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families and he leads the prisoners with singing. Uh, And may we call out to him as our our Abba Father, uh, who is affectionate towards us, um, and he is is worthy of our trust, and he is in it with you, um, and personally near to the brokenhearted. Um, So to all the fathers, happy Father's Day. Uh, We continue in our, our walk through the book of Mark, uh, and today we're in chapter 10, verses 17 to 52, uh, where we're literally taken on a journey with Jesus and the disciples, uh, which will end in Jerusalem, uh, the place where the most significant event in all of human history takes place uh, the death of Jesus, through which he confronts the very powers of evil and inaugurates his kingdom. Um, and as they get closer to this event, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the nature of his kingdom um, that he's bringing in. And his kingdom completely reverses the order uh, of the kingdom of this world. And so Jesus shows us in this text that the way into his kingdom is by following him. And he teaches us what it really means to follow him. What it means when you say, I have decided to follow Jesus. Um, And following Jesus isn't done with riches or Uh, worldly greatness but through poverty and suffering and through service but poverty will lead to true riches and suffering to real eternal life and humble service to real everlasting glory Um, and we'll we'll look at this text in three stages uh, and you know the passage begins and ends Uh, with two completely different encounters that illustrate the point that the kingdom of God is completely opposite uh, to what the disciples, uh, what the world, and what we expect. And so uh, the text is Mark 17, 10, 17 to 52, Um, and uh, I'm going to read, and I'm going to pray, and when I finish reading, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, Um, and because we're thankful that God still speaks to us today, he's wanting to talk to us today, uh, would you respond with, uh, thanks be to God. So Mark 1017 to 52. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, let's pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. So in our first section, we're introduced to this rich man who comes to Jesus and asks him how he might inherit eternal life. Um, and as he comes to him, uh, he is earnest and he is genuine. Um, and he runs and kneels before Jesus. Uh, he, he's shown in the proper respect. And he asks him a legit question, What can I do, or, or how can I gain eternal life? Jesus' response confronts the man's and our notion of what is good, because he calls him good teacher. Uh, and it would seem that uh, he understands goodness as accomplished through human achievement. Uh, hence his confidence that he's upheld the law. But his understanding of goodness is far too low. He bases goodness uh, as flowing from man's good works, that through his works he can ascend uh, and reach up to God and get eternal life. Uh, but truly, goodness is from God alone who bestows eternal life uh, on those who, comp- who, who acknowledge their helplessness, uh, which is why Jesus says only God is good. So to inherit the kingdom of God, uh, you must, like a child, receive it um, and not achieve it. This begs the question, if the man fulfilled the law, then why is he kneeling before Jesus asking him questions? I suspect that at his core, he lacks true assurance. We know that our, our good works are never enough. So he appears confident, uh, but he, he, he doesn't have security. And Jesus gives him the way to eternal life. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and follow me. You call me good, and you want goodness, you want eternal life, and then follow me. And though he's genuinely seeking, he's, a, he's an earnest man, he's not kind of playing games. He refuses because he's rich. So much for your eternal life. So now it's difficult for him to do what Jesus asked because entering the kingdom of God is an impossibility, Jesus says, especially for the rich, which shocks the disciples because of the implications that it poses. Riches in this culture are seen as God's favor. So when the disciples asked "Who, who then can be saved in verse 26, they're saying, in other words, um. If it's difficult for the rich to gain eternal life, and they have God's favor already, then the logical conclusion is that it must be impossible for the poor also. If the rich can't afford eternal life, then how can we? But why does Jesus say it's difficult for the rich specifically? Aside from the fact that it's a human impossibility, uh, there seem to be variations in the way that rich people and poor people receive the call of God. And that is because there is a cost to entering the kingdom of God that is a hard pill to swallow, yet needs to be taken extremely seriously. When Jesus tells the man to sell his possessions and follow him, what he's really asking him is what he asks of all of us when he calls us to follow him. Jesus requires the utter removal of every other support in your life that interferes with placing a single-minded, tunnel vision, wholehearted faith in him. He is asking you to become poor, that is, to become helpless and to get rid of what you trust in. The call of Jesus is one of complete self-surrender, it is a, a, a it's a resignation from your human achievement and from the things that make you feel secure in this world, because he is drawing you into a new world. He removes you from your normal, historic existence to bring you into a new existence based solely on fellowship with him, and that is what it means to be saved. And this is how high the stakes are when you say, I have decided to follow Jesus. This is Jesus asking you to strip down to stark naked and be clothed with whatever he gives you. It is Jesus asking you to leap off a cliff edge with no helmet, no bungee cord, no parachute, and he says he will catch you. These are the stakes. And this is why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, because the entry price is at a cost that the poor are more, are more easily able to pay. Ironically, it's too expensive for the rich to pay this price, because they have so much else that they can trust in. They have so many other resources that they don't feel the need for salvation. And Jesus mentions this earlier in Mark's Gospel, in the parable of the sower, in Mark 4:18 to 19. Where he says, "Um, and others, that are seeds, uh, are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And this is exactly what happened to the rich man. One more thing that we really need to understand is that the rich man, sometimes unlike us, is a very honest man. He may not be as good as he thinks, but he is honest. Now, I don't think the the proper application of the text is is for you to sell all your possessions. Um, Some of you are like, yes. Um, But the principle here is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly with a genuine self-abandonment. And we must take example from this man because here he clearly states, I have decided not to follow Jesus. He doesn't say, "Mm, I'll follow you if I can just keep some of my money or keep some of my possessions. There's no negotiation here because Jesus doesn't give him that option. We, on the other hand, have this idea that the Christian faith is not so costly because we attempt to hold on both to Jesus and to hold on to the world. But by doing this, we are being disobedient to the call of Jesus and end up indistinguishable from the world that Jesus is calling us out from. This compromise actually becomes the way in which we tighten our grip on the world by loosening our grip of Jesus. You cannot have your cake and eat it too, and you cannot fool Jesus Christ into thinking that you can We have to be honest with ourselves and realize the scope of following Jesus is all of life and not compartments. And that is the basic standard for every one of us who has accepted the call of Jesus. It's not a select few that have to do that. It's all of us. There isn't a minimum requirement of surrender for those who believe in Jesus casually. And there isn't a maximum requirement for those who uh, uh, follow Jesus more devoutly, um, or de- devotedly. It is one call for all, and that is complete self-surrender. You cannot hold on to the Lord in one hand and cling to something else in the other. And we especially cannot do this by saying I'm under grace and not law, so I can tailor the call of Jesus to something more palatable for me. That kind of thinking is not following Jesus, And it's not honest. And it's trying to serve God and mammon, which Jesus himself says you can't do. So the call of Jesus here is to become poor and follow him. And for those who by his spirit cast off riches and their old inheritance, Jesus does the impossible and he brings them into the kingdom. But when he brings them in, he doesn't leave us poor. In verse 28 to 31, um, the disciples realize, well, we've left everything to follow you. Um, And Jesus tells them, what you have left, you will receive a hundredfold in this time with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. Now here there's a sense in which uh, being poor uh, includes a relational aspect of forsaken family uh, family relationships uh, and the benefits that come with them like land and property uh, in order to cling to Jesus alone. Yet Jesus' command uh, never seeks to destroy life but to restore it. Jesus never shortchanges us. On top of that, he models for us what he asks us to do him, um, himself in that, Uh, In these verses, uh, uh, it it, it speaks about leaving your family, Um, and Jesus himself, in a sense, left his family. He left the perfect fellowship of the triune God, and he left his Father in order to complete the Father's will. Um, And this kind of thing will be hard for us because it's costly. Our friends and our family are everything, and we love them. Um, Yet Jesus says this too must be left. If we are truly Jesus' disciples under a new kingdom, our friends and family who are under the old kingdom will not always take kindly to your identification with Jesus. Hence, Jesus mentions that what you receive in the new kingdom in this age will include persecution. But even in this age, uh, this sacrifice is not without reward. I mean, I suggest that a, a key place that this reward is seen is within the church which is why so much of the New Testament is dedicated to teaching us how to live as a church. Now I'm so I'm not supposing that anyone here thinks church is not important but I do propose that the church is more important than we think and more important than we treat it. As we come into Christ's kingdom We have a new father, God the Father. By the Spirit, we are born into new life. We were orphans, and now we are children. We have Jesus' blood running through our veins, and we have been given a new name, and we have a new inheritance, or an an eternal inheritance. So think about it. We We experience a new birth. We are children of the same father. We share the same blood. We've been given names, and our inheritance comes from the same place. What does that sound like? It sounds like a family. We are family, word to sister Sledge. Christ brings us into a family, which is why the church isn't just a thing that you do, um, and it's not just the religious people who you'd rather not spend time with. God, oh, it's awkward, man. These people are cheesy. Let's talk talk about the Bible. It's God's grace. It's his reward in this time for those who have forsaken everything. For us who have had to deny family and friends for the sake of Jesus, we come into God's family. And we are genuinely in this together. And not just in theory because there is genuine love here, specifically at Ecclesia, there is a genuine love here between us that we can press into we have a tendency to keep our business our business but we will come we all come into the kingdom poor and helpless and not rich and secure and we come into a kingdom where we're all battling the same enemies none of us here have it all together not even close And none of us here can walk this walk by ourselves. It's hard being a Christian. Let's not disconnect ourselves from the fellowship we so desperately need or disregard it as unimportant or optional or write it off as awkward or remain entitled, waiting for someone to beg you to fellowship with those the Lord has given you. Key phrase, that the Lord has given you. We're here and we're in this together. Jesus Christ is restoring creation to its true and final glory. And he will rule it with unfiltered, unconcealed sovereignty and lordship. And the ones that I'm looking at here, and those of you online and us in prayer meeting, and in Bible study, in members meeting, and all the other meetings that we have, we, together, God's chosen community will reign with him. Not God's chosen individuality, God's chosen community will reign with him. And that's us, all of us. We are not strangers, and we are not cliques. We are the family of God we have more in common with each other than anyone in the world because we have surrendered and stripped off our old selves for the sake of Christ. So let us be open and let's press in to one another. Moving on in the next section, uh, the point shifts uh, to... The way into the kingdom, uh, not being through, or not, not through the poor, not through being poor, um, but here it's through suffering and service. Um, and this section is bookended by Jesus' suffering and then Jesus' service. Now, as they're walking up to Jerusalem, Jesus walks in front and his disciples are behind him and they're watching and they're, they're looking at him and they're, they're, they're amazed and afraid. And it's not clearly stated why, uh, but I suggest that, that this image of Jesus leading at the front, militant and unwavering, should remind us that he is the greater David who steps out on the battlefield where an undefeatable enemy stands, and we are the fearful Israelites who are powerless against our enemies. And Jesus will walk on this battlefield, and he will be victorious, But he reveals here that this victory will only come after he has suffered defeat through rejection from his own people, mockery, violation, and and a brutal execution. And then he will rise to his glory. Then he will be victorious. And so David went on the field to slay Goliath. Jesus goes on the field to be slain. But even though he explains these things, his disciples still don't understand what he's getting at. James and John are basically asking for the, the highest places, the highest seats of honor next to Jesus when he establishes his kingdom. Um, and Jesus asks them, are you, are you able to take, take my cup in my baptism? Which here are both Old Testament metaphors of God pouring out his judgment and disaster against human sin and rebellion. So the disciples' question and Jesus' answer um, is like me, who is not a boxer at all, saying, I want my, my picture and my credentials next to Muhammad Ali and Joe Fraser and Mike Tyson and Evander Holyfield in the Hall of Fame. Those credentials aren't free. The question for me would be, are you prepared to be severely and expeditiously punched up for that position? And this is essentially what Jesus is saying. He's saying, do you, do you want to experience the unbearable level of suffering that I have to experience? And the correct answer to Jesus' question is no. Uh, but they don't seem to understand what he said, what he just said in verse 33 and 34 about his suffering. And so they naively say yes. Yes. In response, Jesus assures them that just like him, they will suffer too. But not at the same level as bearing the sins of mankind. We as followers of Jesus will too experience suffering for his sake. By authentic identification with him, we will suffer. And not just general suffering, but on top of general suffering, Uh, we will experience persecution and rejection and vilification for the sake of Jesus in particular. In John 15, 18 to 20, uh, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world... I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we have church history as well as our own culture's hatred of Christ to testify to this. But we also have the cup and the baptism. As essential, important ordinances that are the means by which we identify with the suffering of Christ. So in baptism, Romans 6.4 says, We are buried with him into death, into his suffering, that we may be raised with him. In the cup, which we call communion, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.29, That by taking the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, we proclaim his suffering until he comes. And so by baptism and the cup, we take part in Christ's suffering. And so the way of the kingdom is that suffering is first, but it opens up the way to true glory with the Lord Jesus. The last way into the kingdom is through service The disciples are angry with James and John, probably because they didn't get there first. And Jesus makes clear that this is not the way of the kingdom. This isn't how the kingdom works. Remember that Jesus reverses this world system of rank and rule and teaches his disciples that the greatest must be a servant. And a servant is not concerned with their own interests, but that of another. The world's way is to dominate and to serve their own interests by means of power. We live in a world where those in power desire to exert power, so much so that they have no problem stepping on the necks of other human beings. And they have no problem ending life like it means nothing simply because they have the power. And this isn't just the powers that be, uh, but even us and how we can treat other people in our own lives when we get a little bit of power. Power is not a bad thing. Mankind was made in the image of God to have dominion and to rule. But sin has so corrupted power that instead of ruling creation, we try to rule and dominate other people. Are the image bearers? Yet Jesus, the one who possesses all power, he is the transcendent, exalted son of man in Daniel 7. The one who possesses all power chose not to step on our necks, not to oppress us, and not to abort us, but used his power to serve lowly, undeserving Rebellious people like you and like me. He used his power to give his very life as a ransom, as a price, to release us from the sin that oppresses us and assaults us both inwardly and outwardly. And to release us from the oppression and the assault of the devil and the world. And to release us from the enormous debt that our sin earns. The greatest came not to be served, but to serve. The king has taken off his royal crown and taken on the bitter cross. And he painfully swallows the cup of God's wrath that we should have to drink. And he is overcome with disaster, like waves of the ocean washing over him, baptizing him for us, in our place. When we rest in Jesus, when we forsake all else and put our trust in Jesus, all that we deserve is poured out on him. And all that he deserves, because he is perfect is given to us as a free gift of his, his overflowing, generous grace. Isaiah 53, 5-6 says, He was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, was the chastisement that brought us peace, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity. The sin of us all. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came not to take, but to give. He came not to oppress, but to set free. And this is our example. And it's written all over Philippians 2. So let's emulate and copy the Lord Jesus and follow his example as the suffering servant King this last section uh, from verse 46 to 52 um, happens right before Jesus uh, enters into Jerusalem and they encounter a blind beggar who is the complete opposite of the rich young man Um, and in this world's eyes he is the least of the least And his cries are a nuisance to the people around him. They are an annoyance. um, And they want him to be quiet. But this this blind beggar, forgetting what uh, everyone else around him has to say, uh, he desperately cries out even louder, Have mercy on me. What is the difference between approaching Jesus in a business suit, eloquently saying, what can I do to, eternal, to, to inherit eternal life? And crying loudly and almost embarrassingly, have mercy on me. Once Jesus calls him, he casts away his, his, his cloak, he throws it away, uh, which probably is all he had. And he springs up, and I presume he runs to Jesus, quite similar to the uh, rich young ruler. And Jesus doesn't indiscriminately heal him from afar, like, all right, all right, be healed. But he calls him near. He, He draws him in and has a conversation with him. He is genuinely involved with this man who everyone saw as a nuisance. This man who was overlooked and shunned. And Jesus gives him his time and uses his power, even while he's on the road to his own death, and serves this man by healing him. And Jesus, after healing him, says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he follows Jesus, which in other words, is the beggar saying, my way Is now your way, Lord. I'm following after you. The rich man who we would think has everything goes away from Jesus empty. And this blind beggar who has nothing comes to Jesus and is filled, he's full. Many who are first will be last and the last first. May the Lord grant us this simple, desperate, humble faith in Jesus that does not cling to our own riches and our own achievement, our own security, but casts them off like the blind man's cloak and just throws them away to cling to Jesus who has a greater reward that all this world has or can offer. Christ deep dived into our world to rescue you out of the illusion that what you see and experience in this world can actually offer you personal fulfillment or lasting achievement. And he wants to introduce you to true satisfaction, true personal fulfillment, True achievement and true life. <clears throat> and this is only found in him. And the whole of the Christian life is patterned after Jesus who did everything that he asks us to do. He is not the hypocritical parent who says, do as I do and not as I say. Or, do as I say and not as I do. He says, do as I say, and do as I do. And in order for him to do that, he lowered himself and came into the depths of this dying world, became like us, gave himself for us. And personally, when you heard the gospel, by means of that, he reached out his hand Toward you so we can have confidence <clears throat> that our road is one of poverty and suffering and service but we are only copying the greatest to ever live the greatest that ever lives and he is genuinely in it with us he is rooting for us And he has stored up for us a reward that blows, that will blow our minds. So we can confidently cast off whatever it is that we trust in and give him our all. I end with a quote from um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, in his book The Cost of Discipleship, which I highly recommend. He says, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it, condemns, it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son and what has cost God cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives but delivered him up for us let's pray join us next time for more of god's truth to transform your reality